Welcome to the History of the Batman with London, brought to you by Meltdown Comics and Collectibles in Hollywood, California. This is where we relive the defining moments of one of the most iconic figures in comic art and literature, the Batman. My name is Adam Silverstein, and I am joined with the star of the show, London. Thanks for coming and being here. Also, from the shadows, lurking. We don't know when he'll pop in. But we have Shadow Adam in the house. Today, this is our eighth episode. We are continuing our discussion from last week. Last week, we talked about um, the creators of Batman that gave prominent, prominent, that's the right word, I think, contributions to the canon. We went through the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. The sixties. Did we get to the seventies? I think we're no, I think we're, we're on the seventies, huh? We're at the seventies now. Okay. <laughs> so how are you, London? I'm fine. How are you? I got so excited about all the great material we're gonna talk about today. <laughs> I forgot to say hello. Um so last week we were talking I mean, I think you specifically said that you picked two creators from each decade. Right. And these were ones that that you felt had major contributions. Right. Um, each decade, I think, represented a different type of Batman, um, whether how he was written, how he was drawn. And I picked two creators. Um, either they were both writers or artists or both, um, illustrating just, you know, how Batman was in that certain time period from – 1939 his debut how he was you know his first year he was by himself and he was just this shadowy vigilante and um I talked about the creators Bob Kane and Bill Finger and certain stories and I just went through 40s and the 50s and kind of how it entered the silver age in certain creators and then we ended with the 1960s um with uh Carmine Infantino as one of the prominent artists and now we're going to talk about the 1970s where Batman totally transitioned from one art form and one type of theme to theme to another. Okay, so what you're talking when you say transition from one type of art form to another, are you talking about the TV show? Yes, that's a really big part of it. Um, since from the 66, 68 um, live action TV show, it was very lighthearted. It was very campy. You know, Adam West and Burt Ward, they really represented the Silver Age comics and the villains that were in it represented how they were drawn and it you know rose you know DC sales for Batman since they were dropping and everything but it kind of stayed away from kind of the gothic roots that originated with um Kane and Finger in the 30s and the 40s and so the 70s definitely brought back um that type of character to Batman so 70s kind of rode the wave of what was happening at the end of the 60s. Right, definitely. And just exploded with these talents and creators that are pretty much household names now. Right. They're definitely really important to um, Batman's uh, creative history. So in the 60s, um, you had mentioned, I guess, the earlier 60s, Batman's sales were kind of lagging or he was stagnant right. or something. Why do you think that was? I think some of the readers, they kind of got disinterested, I suppose. I mean, it was kind of happening in the mid-60s, like 63, 64, 65. And I think just the stories itself, they weren't, I don't know, it just kind of fell from, especially after they had to do the um, the CCA, the Comics Code Authority, and kind of having to change the characters and, and their dynamics and how they acted. Everything was kind of gimmicky, was kind of funny, was kind of silly, and that kind of um, was a turnoff for a lot of the audience that it originally had. And so I think that's why when they wanted to do the show, and William Doja, the producer of the live-action TV show, he wanted to get a new audience in, you know, not just the regular younger audience, so kind of an older audience too, and so they, um, so yeah, the TV show really boosted that sale, and even um, at the end of the series when they put in a Barbara Gordon Batgirl and they introduced her in Detective Comics three fifty nine in the third season, that really helped um, the Batman, I guess, 
comics, you know, rise. But once the TV show and the Batmania and all of the phenomenon that came with it, when it ended, the sales kind of took a dive again. Mm. But then at the in the early 70s, like 71, when the two uh, creators that I'm going to talk about, Dennis O'Neill and Neil Adams came, they definitely changed the way that Batman was presented and kind of took him out of that campy style. Now... Tell the listeners who who is is Dennis O'Neill a, a creator? Is he a writer? Is he a, what? Is, what kind a, of creator is he? He is a writer. He um, first became prominent um, in Marvel, and Stan Lee kind of um, found him. And at first, you know, Dennis O'Neill he wasn't trying to write for comics. When he tried out for like a writing test, it was just because you know he just had time on his hands. He wasn't. He never considered himself he was going to write for comic books or stories. But he wrote a quick. Um, a quick thing for Fantastic Four, and Stanley was interested. And then once he worked with them for a while, then he came to DC and he worked on publications such as Wonder Woman and um, Justice League of America. So he did that from the late 60s to the early 70s, and then um, that's when he went on to Batman. And he worked alongside Neil Adams, who's an artist, and he had been doing tons of work for Marvel and DC. He worked on uh, the characters like Dead Man, and he did a lot for Green Arrow and Green Lantern, and he already had a name for himself before he even really did Batman. He did a few Superman covers and on Action Comics, and he even did World's Finest, and he worked on Superman and Batman as characters as a whole. But then he focused in on Batman in about se- in 1971 to like 1973. So these two collaborated. Yes, they were pretty much the two. They're like the duo. Like today, when you think of Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo, you think that they're like the two Batman, you know, dynamic duo. Um, Adams and O'Neill were definitely that way for the early 70s. I think people who read their stories and look at how they kind of changed the face of Batman would definitely say that they had a really important part of defining Batman in that era. Now, do you know if they came on the Batman titles together or was one there before the other? Well, Neil Adams definitely was there on Batman before Neil Adams, um, Dennis O'Neill, but I think once he did his other projects and they wanted to kind of redefine Batman and bring in new villains and everything I think they kind of collaborated so for like the very end of the 60s like 68 69 70 um, they did their own separate project with Marvel DC and other you know comic strips but then in 71 kind of mid 71 that's when they came together and collaborated and so when would you how long did they work together um, they worked straight together for probably about on the Batman two, titles. yeah on the Batman titles and Batman detective comics for probably about two years but in that two years, they broke a lot of ground and they introduced a lot of characters and kind of redefined him in the moment where Batman, I think, you know, he needed a different change. Even though I am a huge fan of the campy era in the 60s and, and that Silver Age um, style, I think that for a lot of fans that were kind of drifting away from reading Batman stories, they needed that, you know, that grit and that gothic you know, style that he was originally created in and that drew in a lot of people and new audience. Right. So over that two-year period, you said they they started, they really hit a groove. Yeah, definitely. And uh, came up with some amazing, I guess, stories and characters. Right. So why don't you tell uh, me specifically and then the audience in general (laughs) about what they did together? What was the magic that they ended up creating? Well, they pretty much took the type of storyline and the adventure from the 40s and brought it into the comics now. And two, I think I always highlight these two even on um, the blog for people who really want to see, you know, a transition from one era to another. They um, redefined the Joker, who was a classic character. He was originally in 1940. And they brought in a new villain, Ra's al Ghul, who's now one of the most prominent and one of the most favored villains in Batman's rogues gallery. Um, they first worked on... Um, they first created Ra's al Ghul, and he came out in Batman 232, and that was in June of 1971. And that was the story, Daughter of the Demon. And they introduced Ra's al Ghul as the leader of the League of Assassins, which, as it sounds, they're a, a, a team of just assassins that kind of in, 
take over and Roz is an eco-terrorist and he has a daughter whose name is Talia Ghul and they pretty much create this um, this whole r- rouge um, against Batman to try to show him that he is the ultimate heir to take over um, League of Assassins when Roz is gone and that he is the perfect mate for Talia, his daughter, and it already creates this dynamic that hadn't really been seen before. Um, You see Roz as one of the only ones outside of the Batman family of Dick Grayson or or Alfred Pennyworth that Roz Ghul knows the identity of Batman as Bruce Wayne. When he first meet, they meet in the Batcave. I mean, it's... They, how, how did that happen? Well, they don't really tell you exactly how Roz, you know, found out all the information, but they just, they pretty much insinuate that, you know, he has all of the knowledge and techniques and everything to discover who, you know, the most secreted man pretty much in the city is. And so when you first meet Roz, he's an interesting kind of like mystical character. And then when you once, you know, learn about him more in the following Batman story arcs, you know, this um, Ra's al Ghul kind of storyline lasts from like issues 232 to probably about 10 issues in, it's like 242. And at that point, Batman sees Ra's as an enemy and he has to fight him. And all in the middle of it, Tali is there and she's falling in love with Bruce. And it's a very exciting and kind of different story that you would have seen from the 60s. It's it's still very, you know, kind of mystical and magical because you learn, you first discover that Ra's al Ghul has this Lazarus pit where, you know, if he's dying or if he's hurt or injured, he, you know, just like, you know, Lazarus, the, the that legend, I mean, you go in and then he rises, you know, from the dead and Ra's uses that and pretty much now I think everyone knows Lazarus pit, even if it's not in the movie movies but in the comics as a tool that Roz uses and it's been used on other Batman family members that you see decades later but um, Neil Adams and Dennis O'Neill they introduced a character that was mystical yet it was kind of in a modern sense dark and kind of a new story that kind of brings people back to reading Bill Finger's stories a few decades before. I mean this was a big character I mean he was in the first Nolan Batman right he was in Batman Begins and um, Liam Neeson played him and even though that origin story isn't really represented in the comics where um, Bruce was trained under him you know because they never really had that dynamic it's still they kind of brought that character which for a lot of people I don't think if they didn't put him in the Nolan films I don't think people would really like him or even know him that much because he, Ra's al Ghul is still prominent in 80s and 90s comics and even early 2000s, but not necessarily as this, you know, kind of really villainous character. He's kind of out of the way. But when they put him in the films, that's when his prominence came. And now he's in, you know, television shows like Arrow and, you know, he's a big character now. So this Lazarus pit that you're talking about? Yes. Um... Do they ever tell you how old Roz is? Um, they Some just say he's thousands and thousands of years old. I mean, there's no exact number, but it's just he's pretty much been um, incarnated over the thousands of years, pretty much. And you learn that probably within the first arc, which is interesting, because usually with backstories and origin stories, you see the character first, and then you have to wait kind of um, a period of time to even know kind of who they are and what their backstory is and where they came from and everything. But kind of with this, um, Dennis O'Neill really puts in all of, you know, his origin and just the type of diabolical character he is and with League of Assassins and then with Talia. And this weird dynamic that Bruce has to deal with. He, he has to deal with someone who knows his identity, who knows, you know, his training and who kind of knows who he is where Batman never had to deal with that before, and he kind of is, you know, secretive on his own. And then he has the matter of a romance, in a way. You know, he's kind of turned off from Talia because she's so demanding and so, you know, order, you know, she's ordered by Roz. And that already for Talia is, you know, a burden because she's torn between listening to her father, who she respects, and then is torn between following how she feels about Bruce. And in the end, that just 
creates resentment for both of them. And so Bruce has to deal with a lot of different factors with the um, Al Ghul's dynamic. And of course, we know that in the late 80s, the story Batman, Son of the Demon, where Talia and Bruce, um, they get married and then they have a child, but then Bruce doesn't know and it's this whole thing, but Damien comes from it. So mm. in the end, Roz is a really important character because now we have Bruce's biological son, which he didn't have, you know, I mean, he eventually adopted Dick Grayson and then later Tim Drake, and so they're technically his sons. I guess all of the Robins, you would say, you know, he has a father-son dynamic, but he actually has a real son in Damien. So them creating Ra's al Ghul just in general um, was a really important for the, you know, remain the future decades, but bringing in this kind of story um, during the early 70s and really started to push Batman out of that kind of campy era, for sure. Um, and after that, uh, just two years later, they reinvented the Joker. And before, even in the, the 40s and the early 50s, Joker was still a ma um, you know, he was killing people and, you know, he was creating chaos and just a huge massacre. Um, when the Comic Code Authority came in 94, he had to become a more gimmick character, really silly. He couldn't kill, really. I mean, he was just Shot more... Shot a gun with a flare. Yeah, you know, he has a, a flower with acid that doesn't really do anything. I mean, it's just very, you know, it's almost comical. He's not really scary or dangerous. But then in uh, Batman 251 from um, 1973, um, the Joker's five-way revenge, that's when... A lot of people, I guess a lot of uh, comic readers and just fans in general, they know that that's when the Joker turned to kind of the crazed killer um, that we kind of see today, even in comics. And I, you know, I discussed this on our, on one of our earlier episodes when we talked about the 75 years of the Joker, but it, pretty much in the story, um, the Joker is released from prison and he is trying to kill the five gangs that put him in prison. And he almost succeeds. He kills three people just out of cold blood and Batman has to trace them all throughout Gotham to find him. And they end up kind of like at this big aquarium and he, you know, arrests him. But just the way that he's designed and just kind of the you know, the crazed look he has, it, you know, took him out of that silly nature and showed that he's a really dangerous villain. And he also began to appear kind of less in comics, you know. He didn't, not in every other Batman thing, you know. They saved him. They started. Right. You know, he's like his main arch nemesis. After that issue, he became his main villain. So they didn't want to put him in every other issue that Batman had, you know, which was at the time monthly. They wanted to like spare him out. So like within a year, you may see him three times if that. And they would have major stories with him. And definitely Dennis O'Neill and and Neil Adams, they they changed Joker into the Joker that we know today, which a lot of fans really enjoy. Wow. Those guys, uh, did they do anything else, or were those the two main... I mean, they continued. They um, Those were the main, I guess, I think, characters that they worked on. But, I mean, just in general, they did Batman stories and Batman and in Detective Comics. Um, but I think for at least anyone interested in the, I guess, early Neil Adams work, because later, you know, he does Batman Odyssey in like the 2000s and he does other Batman works and so does Dennis O'Neill, you know, especially in the 90s. But I think starting out on the character, those are two really important um, stories. And even with Ra's al Ghul, the kind of arc um, that people should read. I think that's really good for them to read. Yeah. They'd be interested in that. Wow, it's nice to see that uh, they came in together and then continued even separately to right. still create the canon. Yes, and, definitely. Know, it's like the Bat family of creators. <laughs> exactly. Um, so then we move into the 80s, and I obviously um, have a soft spot in my heart for the 80s because that's pretty much when I was fully into comics. Okay. Um, <laughs> I just got done with the Daredevil Frank Miller, and so I assume that you'll be talking about Frank Miller in the 80s. Yes, definitely. He's so who, who are your creators in the 80s that the you 80s. are, you know, 
feeling as the big contributors? Um, I picked Frank Miller, and I picked yes, uh, <laughs> and I picked uh, Jim Starlin, but definitely Frank Miller. I think should go first and foremost for the eighties. Should we save him? Can you talk about? Should you start about Jim Starlin first? I can because... talk about Jim Starlin first. Okay, because I, I wanted to end <laughs> with Frank Miller. I'm wearing my Daredevil shirt. I know I, I shouldn't say that. this. In a... <laughs> <laughs> Batman podcast. But... No, that's totally fine. But I did it in special honor of today. <laughs> so anyway, sorry. Jim Starlin. Tell me a little bit about Jim. Uh, Jim Starlin, he pretty much emerged in the late 80s, which is interesting because the early 80s, it's still kind of um, spanned off of like uh, Steve Englehart and, um, and creators like that. And they you know, kind of kept the same momentum that Neil Adams and Dennis O'Neill were having with Batman in terms of, like, transitioning him to kind of darker stories, darker characters, kind of more, you know, serious, I guess, toned stories. Um, and then Jim Starlin, he kind of came and he started on Batman and Detective Comics kind of in the late 80s, and I picked him because he wrote one of probably the most important Batman stories within the 80s and actually one of them within uh, Batman's history altogether and that was in a... By the way, they're moving a lot oh, of yeah. stuff here at Meltdown <laughs> Comics. Busy, 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 busy. So uh, maybe I should give a shout out to our sponsor, Meltdown <laughs> Comics, because they're reminding us that we are there. So yes. 7522 Sunset Boulevard, come on down and check out meltcomics.com. <laughs> for a list of great things, uh, calendar and all kinds of other great stuff. So they're saying hi to the audience right now by moving a lot of stuff. <laughs> We're getting ready for a Dan Klaus, um, a Dan Klaus signing, so oh, it's going to nice. be huge. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. Uh, but yeah, Jim Starlin, he wrote one of the most important stories, I think, in Batman's Mythos, and that was in 1988-1989, that Batman and Death in the Family. And um, that had a lot of different uh, artists, artists on it, like Jim Aparo. Um, but pretty much that story is significant um, because it killed off the second Robin at the time, who was Jason Todd. And he was introduced in 1983, became Robin in 1984. And it was in response to actually the audience who didn't like Jason Todd as a character. And this was the first time DC kind of... Um, kind of dealt with it in terms of having the fans technically decide whether or not they want to continue having this character in Batman's mythos. So they gave out a 1-900 number that people could call in and they can vote whether they wanted Jason Todd in the story to live or to die, and it would be by the hands of the Joker. And by a really small margin, it pretty much turned out that people voted for Jason Todd to be killed. And so in the third issue, you discover that um, Joker beat Jason T Todd with a crowbar and then left him in a warehouse and it exploded and Batman finds his body. And that's a really, it's not just horrific because someone dies in Batman's family, but you see the ripples of that event happening even in later Batman stories and detective comic stories that Jim Starlin writes. It kind of shows Batman feeling guilty, him feeling, you know, sad and lonely, you know, without a Robin. So for a period of time, he probably for about two or three years, he really didn't have that kind of sidekick that he now had since pretty much the 40s. Um, so I, I see Jim Starlin as important and he's also important in the nineties as well. He, you know, contributes to stories like Nightfall. Um, but I think this story in the late eighties and his prominence, um, for Batman was really important, um, because this story was, you know, along the lines of Alan Moore's The Killing Joke, right at the same time, they both presented not just Joker, just so happenstance that Joker's the villain in both, but just really dark tales that kind of definitely showed Batman in a new, kind of the modern Batman that we now see today. That's why I think a lot of people, when they read comics from like the early to late 2000s, and you know, even New 52, they, they only really know this kind of dark Batman. So when you see, when people a lot of times see anything else, anything more lighthearted or kind of quote unquote silly, it's because, I mean, it's been rooted since um, Jim Starlin and even Frank Miller in the mid 80s that 
Batman is, you know, a dark knight. Like, he puts the dark in dark knight at this point. And it's a lot, it's harder for people, you know, maybe they don't want to read, like, Batman 66, like the comic, uh, like the Mike Allred that's doing right now, which I enjoy because I like the 60s Batman. But it's, like, that versus reading, you know, in game and you know zero year and all of those stories i mean they're very different but it's i guess jim starlin and frank miller they kind of introduced the modern batman that we know today and so i picked those two and then yes frank miller he would be our next one for right. sure I, just an interesting comment on jim starlin i mean i think that this guy is a, i mean just an amazing creator oh, when, definitely. when you really think about it. i mean his big some of his big contributions for marvel were Captain Marvel, yes. uh, Dread Star, Infinity Gauntlet, like these huge space right. odysseys. We're exactly. talking, you know, universe-spanning stories. Right. And then he could write the street-level Batman, one of the most iconic stories, you know, Killing Robin. Right. Uh, it just shows, uh, you know, yeah. a little bit of diversity in yes. what this guy's able He's to do. He's an amazing creator and has contributed to all kinds of stories. And that's why I really wanted to make sure I included him in this retrospect because even if, you know, this is just like one story, you know, but it's a huge story, it's like you huge. said. It's and iconic. he used a 900 number. Right, which they never did that before. I mean, I don't, I, I, people, you could even say today, you know, younger people use a 900 number. They're like, what? They're like, what's, what's that? A, what's a 900 number? <laughs> but that, people used to get charged. A ton, maybe call it. Right. Remember the late night commercials? Call one nine hundred Beach Party or something. <laughs> Wasn't there a lot of controversy behind the one nine hundred number because oh, it was automated? Yeah, and uh, and years after, people came out and said that you know there were votes added, and there was this one person who you know kept voting continuously, and so people think that oh maybe you know. It wasn't true to what it was supposed to be. Maybe he should have lived. But then when you hear creators talk about it, they said, okay, well, let's say Jason Todd, they decided to let him live. They weren't going to let him be Robin anymore. And, and you know what else <laughs> you probably saw around that time, which is something you still see today? You see the ugly side of fans, really. Right. You know, they just will rip things. No one, not everyone can be happy, right? So right. you've got a top creator doing something to engage the audience and not everyone's going to be happy right and so even if you're at the top of the game uh you're going to have haters and it uh, clearly it was in the 70s and it is to today i mean you just can't make everyone happy and it's right. really unfortunate <laughs> uh, that's one of the things i appreciate about you is you you keep your you have a very good attitude about how things play out you know right. you're you're Keep an open mind. Why hate when you can just enjoy? I mean, the way I look at comic books, you know, my one of the things as I have grown, like, for example, my favorite comic book is Daredevil. Right. All right. I've, I've told you this. <laughs> and Daredevil's stories have not always been good. Mm -hmm. Right? There was a time when he switched to a black armored uh, uniform. It was, it was just a terrible Story. I did not enjoy it, yeah. but I stayed with the character because in life you have ups and downs. You don't always have the most exciting thing happen, and it's not always good. And that's the same thing with comics. So for so long, I didn't even know about creators because mm -hmm. I was so into the character. Right. And the point being is I'm open-minded, I believe, about these characters, and I think you are too with Batman. Definitely. I mean, I think a lot of people, they have their particular favorite type of Batman, but the fact that you can have a favorite type, you know, that he's so diverse that it's not the same character for 70 plus years, I think speaks to the creators and that they should kind of, you know, be noticed because you're, if your favorite type of Batman came from the, you know, the 80s, I mean, he was different from the Batman in the 70s and the 60s and the 50s. Right. And mean, so I think it's important for fans, you know, to have an open mind. I mean, I know a lot of people going into when they started the New 52, they a lot of people didn't like it because it was so kind of pigeonholed and it didn't really expand, you know, it didn't have as much of, you know, kind of like the multiverse that it could have, which is why I was really interested in how Convergence kind of ended this week and how now we have 
all kinds of, it turned from the universe to the multiverse. And even though, you know, everyone was kind of surprised with the ending, I liked it because now you can pick from all different types now, I think, if you think about it, of different right. Batman. So, right. yeah, having an open mind with comics is really important because your favorite Batman will probably come from a certain creator. And that creator isn't going to draw or write Batman forever. So you kind of have to have an open mind with, especially if you really like a character, like you really like Daredevil. You know, you have to be open to all the different types of creators right. for it. And I, th- and I just think that's an important point that, you know, that you stress. Just keep an open mind. All Definitely. Right? And, uh, and, and stop hating so much on these <laughs> things and just let the stories play out. Yeah. And if you don't like it, Go back and find something that you will like. I mean, I say that to the people who follow the page all the time, especially with all of the movie news and, you know, everything, and everyone's so opinionated, and already people are so, just have hate for it. They're like, oh, I just, I'm not going to like it. I'm going to boycott it. I I don't like this. It's like, you have to be open to it because we don't know everything about it yet. And in the end, which has happened a lot, especially, you know, when Heath Ledger was playing the Joker, there was so much hate towards him. They're like, no, this looks different. I don't like this. This isn't going to be like, you know, when I saw Jack Nicholson do it. You know, this is, I don't like him. And, you know, yeah, it just it, is so much. Right. There are so many opinions, and it's, it's so negative. Right. It sounds like a crotchety old grandpa who just can't change in his ways. You know yeah, what I mean? It's, so. you, yeah. You definitely have to be open, especially with a field that is built on creativity. I mean, comics, you know, it's imagination at its best. So you can't be so, you know, confined to one thing. You really should have an open mind. I definitely right. agree. <laughs> cool. Well, I'm glad we agree on that. Uh Talk about Frank Miller, because I believe personally <laughs> that he was the one that changed Batman into what he solidified it as to what people know today. And right. I may be wrong, no, but he, that's what I think. So tell me. Definitely. I mean, Frank Miller, he started, um, he's a writer and an artist, um, but he started, you know, not even in Marvel or DC. You know, he kind of did... Um, works for like Twilight Zone and then once he did go to Marvel he worked on the Spectacular Spider-Man and then you know for you he worked on Daredevil which was in the late 70s and then he went to the early 80s and he kind of worked on that character in that book for a while. He Sharpened did... his sword <laughs> and then just crushed it. Exactly and he Batman. introduced Elektra and just and then he started on Wolverine and just he was a really huge force within the Marvel Universe and then he went in to do DC, and they asked him to work on Batman, and I think that's when everything kind of changed. And I know a lot of people um, that they either really love Frank Miller and they love his work, or they don't like him at all, or they just like him for his mid-'80s Batman, and that's it. I mean, I've met people who are like, that's all I like him for, you know, even though Frank Miller's done tons of work, but... He really redefined Batman in 1986, uh, Batman The Dark Knight Returns, four-issue arc. Um, it was him and Klaus Janssen and Lynn Varley, and it pretty much um, put Batman in a kind of alternate time span. It's in the future. Batman's a 55-year-old retired uh, Batman. I mean, he retired for, for 10 years, and it was due to, in this comic in this universe the death of Jason Todd which everyone kind of thinks is a coincidence because later he dies in the regular continuity but I think it's just a coincidence but um that's your opinion that is my opinion (laughs) I mean I did not create them and I don't know what the creators did maybe they liked that and thought hey let's do it I don't know but yeah he did the Dark Knight Returns and it pretty much says what the title is he comes out of retirement when this new criminal uh, group the mutant gang come and they're taking over Gotham and he feels like he needs to go back and put on the cape and the cowl and defend his city even though he's at an older age and he hasn't been Batman hasn't been fighting or anything training none of that for a long period of time and you kind of see him as you know you see him he's like bulkier and bigger and he's he is older and he's a little bit more grittier and meaner and Yet he's so determined to come back as the same Batman that he was. And in the beginning of the arc, it's interesting to look at him because he feels like he can be the exact same Batman he was 10 years ago. But then once he starts fighting and then he pretty much gets beaten, you see him kind of 
come back and kind of look at himself and say, I can't, I am Batman. I'm not the same Batman, but I can still defend the city. And then, of course, um, Superman comes in and they have that dynamic and Superman has to pretty much fight Batman, you know, kind of due to U.S. orders. And then that's why you have the ultimate Batman versus Superman fight that everyone quotes and loves and is now... What people think um, is what is a reflection on the movie right. that's going to come out next year, the Batman versus and Superman. And didn't, didn't Frank Miller do that scene or have that fight because he just didn't like Superman? That's what people say. And, I mean, I think I've read a recent interviews with Frank Miller, and he said that he has no problem with Superman. Hmm. So... I guess people, I think people want to think that he just hates Superman, and so he wanted Batman to beat him because, you know, he's the most powerful being pretty much in that universe, and so this ordinary man can beat such an extraordinary, you know, person. He has to be the best, and that is a fine, you know, thought to have, and, you know, especially if you love Batman, you know, like, Batman's my favorite But then again, you know, in the story, he has so much help and so much aid. And in the end, you know that Superman is holding back and he doesn't want to fight him. Doesn't. And and then there's armor, right? Right. He has this super high-tech armor. Then he has um, Oliver Queen or Green Arrow come. And he has, you know, kryptonite arrows. And it's just he has a lot of help and aid. It's not just them you know, dumped on the street saying fight to the death with nothing, no prep time or anything. I mean, he prepped for, and I think he knew that because he is older. He's not the same Batman. He prepped for what he needed to do, and that was to stop Superman. And it turned out, as in all, a great story visually. It was a great story written, and it presented a, a Batman that, like I said, that we now kind of see in the 90s and the 2000s, what we see today. In in your opinion, why do you think that story had such an impact? I think it was because, I mean, of the format, the kind of the, the prestige, you know, square panel format, just the way that it looked, the kind of paper that it was. I mean, it wasn't like the same type of, you know, uh, it's kind of a more grit. Yeah, it's, I mean, every, but it's kind of like, not just like the newspaper print, it was kind of more gritty. It's just, everything about it was different. It was a very night and day towards even the late 70s and what that was presenting. And it definitely made people take Batman away from what he was like in the 60s. And even though it's two decades away, the 60s, it was such an impact. I mean, the live action made Batman in the 60s, the Batman that everyone knew. So kind of taking something that was universal to everybody, people who don't even read comics, they knew Batman because of the the television series. This comic, not even, it, it introduced people, an older audience, I guess. They were trying to create an audience for, or comics for an adult audience, you know, not just boys in the ranges of 12 to 15. It was like they wanted to reach out to older, you know, comic book readers. And this story, it was a little more violent. It was a little more gritty. And that really hooked them in. It sounds like it was an event. Right. I mean, it was something that was really... And, I mean, even if you think about it now, it's really groundbreaking because it really set a different tone. It, you know created a new mold for Batman and Frank Miller continued that with with redoing his Batman's origin story and he did that in 1987's Batman Year One and the artist was um, David Masuchelli and that was a four issue arc and everyone knows Batman's origin you know his mother and father were gunned down by a mugger in the alley after coming home from the theater and then you know Bruce trained and swore vengeance on his parents by becoming the shadowy figure and he became the Batman. Well, Frank Miller, he reintroduced this story and to a new generation, this new audience that's coming into Batman. And he also gave us a look at that interesting period between when Bruce's parents died to when he's actually Batman. And you don't really see that. So you kind of see how he trains abroad and you see the first, you know, it's his first year. It's literally the first times, the first instances where he dresses up as Batman and 
he gets hurt and he stumbles and he's, you know, kind of sloppy. I mean, but it's his first time being Batman and you don't really get to see that in a lot of comics. He's just, boom, he's already Batman. He's been in the game for years and he's the world's greatest detective. But in here, you see him struggling to become what he ultimately, ultimately becomes. Right. So. Which is interesting because he also, Frank Miller, did that for Daredevil with a exactly. man without fear. Right, exactly. And, which was a prestige format comic. Yeah, uh, so. Real quick, about point. the Dark Knight Returns yeah. or the um yeah that that one so was that because it was in the future right? right had they done a lot of that where they take batman out of the continuity no. before that no the because the idea of an elseworld which is pretty much all of the alternate continuities and stories that we know now that didn't happen until gotham by gaslight which was in um 1989 and that was a mike mignola a p craig um story but yeah this was different because it was kind of in a way i mean an unofficial elseworld it was kind of in the future and it didn't match at all to the continuity that batman was in before um it wasn't stated that it was an elseworld it just showed a kind of what if type of story like you know what if in the future this is what Batman is? You know, it didn't fall in line. And that's what I think is interesting because everyone wants to say that, oh, Batman beat Superman in the continuity. But if you really think about it, it's not really in the continuity that it was then. You can technically say it's an out-of-universe story. And if you wanted if you wanted to, you could say it doesn't really count into the comics that were, you know, in the regular timeline for Batman and all the DC universe. So that in itself was different. Wow. So another contributing factor of why the perfect storm uh, for this Frank Miller run. Definitely. Um, all right, real quick, we just have to give a shout out to our sponsor, Comics Fix, a digital comic platform. It's a subscription-based service where you pay and uh, per month fee, and then you get to read as many comics that are on the site, kind of like Netflix. They just recently got all 72 issues of The Boys by Garth Enos and Derek Robertson. They're available. So check out Comics Fix. You can read it on your computer, on your tablet, on your phone. So check out Comics Fix, comicsfix.com. All right. Frank Miller, we just got done talking about. Are we done with the 80s? Can we move into the 90s? Sure, we can move into the 90s. Even though I think it's interesting to note that recently Frank Miller is going to do the last chapter of Dark Knight Returns. It's Dark Knight Returns 3. And I'm kind of interested, interested to see how he's going to continue that story. Right. Now, also then, so Frank Miller did a follow-up. He did right. a sequel. He did The Dark Knight Strikes Again, and which is in the early 2000s. And in my opinion, that wasn't his best right. contribution to right. this story. That was not that was other people had that opinion as well. Right. You know, and I'm not saying it was horrible, but I'm saying it wasn't the best right. that it could have been. Of and course. and then there was the time he did the um Batman with Jim All Star Batman with that, Jim Lee. Yes, that is my guilty pleasure. Really? Yes. I so love All Star Batman. So he satisfied mm -hmm. your that tastes is at awesome. that point. I mean, I almost see that Batman as almost like a satire on Batman. I mean, it's so kind of overly like what Batman really would be if he was just a hard ass all the time and just an ass to everybody. Okay. I mean, I, I love that. I, that's totally my favorite. I'm so sad it kind of was sprinkled over a period of time. It never and, came out on time. It never really, yeah, it didn't come out on time and didn't really finish technically. It kind of just just left with issue 10, and I'm like, well, it's what like, happened? It's like a B-movie. It's so bad, it's good. Yeah, okay. it's awesome. I, I love it. I love the goddamn Batman. That's like So favorite. now he's <laughs> coming back, right? Yes. When is this? Um, They said it's going to be later this year. It said in the fall, Um, and I think Brian Azzarello is going to be a contributing artist. They didn't say anyone else yet. But I'm I'm just interested to see how like they're gonna move forward with it. So, yeah, there's more Frank Miller to enjoy soon, and I'm sure you'll enjoy that too. <laughs> yes, I will. Well, I've I've kind of fallen off the Frank Miller okay. uh, bandwagon. <laughs> I mean, I love what he's done. I love his stuff. I love 300. Right. I love I love Sin City. Okay. Um, but I was less impressed with the second Dark Knight. Uh, I was not as in, I don't have as guilty of a pleasure from All Star, <laughs> um, Batman, and so I just have I'm not 
I'm I'm reserved in my judgment. That's, I'll, I'll be and ex- that's fine. Yes, I will. I will buy it. I will support, but I will want to wait and to, to make an opinion because I know he's capable of absolute brilliance. Right. I mean, clearly his his influence on comics culture is humongous. Definitely. I don't think it, and I think he's just a genius for what he's done. And so I'm open to whatever he will do. Right. And I agree completely with that. But I also think, and this is my opinion, I'm sure people would disagree, is that when he did The Dark Knight Returns and Batman Year One, that was like his peak. That was like his ultimate, you know. I don't think he can do any better than that. I think he can do great work. I think that the third one could be fantastic, but I don't think it would measure up to what everyone I think thinks is going to happen. They think he's going to make another Dark Knight Returns. And I think that's a really high expectation. I mean, you know what? It's 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 common with a lot of musical artists, especially hip hop artists. I mean, Nas, everyone's like his best stuff, his first right, album, and exactly. they'll never get there again. So, exactly. I mean, I'm not saying that Frank Miller's first stuff, but he reached that pinnacle, and right. people are never going to be satisfied. And 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 I think that's why people kind of they have to you know see like okay, well, Frank Miller, he did this amazing thing, this amazing contribution to. Batman in the in the mid '80s, but you know we'll see what he comes out with in, in the fall. I, I'll I'll read it definitely. Okay. <laughs> so moving on to the '90s. Yep, moving on to the you're going to talk a little bit about Chuck Dixon. Yes. And Norm Brayfogle. Yes, Norm Brayfogle. Those two, they definitely had. They they both contributed very interestingly to Batman. I think you know coming into the '90s. You had, you know, especially in the early 90s, you had movies like Batman Returns, you know, Tim Burton's sequel to Batman, and that was already in itself kind of like a dark kind of film, so dark that they kind of moved away from it from the rest of the films. And so you already had, you already were kind of in this kind of dark Batman kind of gritty period. And then, you know, Chuck Dixon comes, who I think is an extraordinary writer. And he already worked on characters like the Punisher. And he even, um, he was really important to Batman first off because he created um, the third Robin that would come after Jason Todd, Tim Drake. And he even gave him his own publication. And he was the first Robin to kind of have his own self-titled publication. And I guess if you had to pick stories that Chuck Dixon um, gave to Batman, it would definitely be his early run in the 90s with Batman Nightfall, which, of course, was a crossover, huge epic. And Mason's favorite Bane. Oh, yes, his favorite uh, villain, Bane. Awesome. Mason, our wonderful <laughs> engineer and producer. <laughs> Um, and he contributed to Nightfall and Detective Comics 644 to 738. I mean, it was a huge, you know, contribution. And yes, he helped create the character Bane, who we know is the man who broke the bat in Batman 497. And that's the climax of the first story, Nightfall. And then you have Night's Quest and Night's End. And he contributed to that storyline that kind of altered the Batman family for a period of time, introduced characters like John Paul Valley, and then you kind of saw Batman and Dick Grayson's relationship grow in Prodigal and um, and even the early 90s was a really big period for Chuck Dixon, but I think um, he also contributed to Batman uh, No Man's Land, which I think is a really great story. It was a year-long epic. It was in 1999, um, and the artist was uh, Graham Nolan, who was also a really great contributor in the 90s. It's interesting because the 90s, I think, is probably the decade that people, I think, maybe... For some people, it was like their Batman. It was the Batman they grew up on. It was the first Batman that I read, um, so... The 90s for me was an important era because that's when I started to get into comics and really liked them and kind of expanded upon it. Um, but unless you kind of grew up in it and like was right there, the 90s kind of can pass you by too. I think it's one of those eras that like isn't like the main top five eras in Batman or was the main Batman, even though huge story arcs like Nightfall and No Man's Land, these huge epics, these huge stories where, you know, especially in No Man's Land after the huge 
earthquake in Gotham, and then Gotham is pretty much deserted by the U.S. And then, I thought that was a great story. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic storyline. I mean, because you get to see different characters. You get to explore Commissioner Gordon and his struggles and his family, and you get to see people just people that live in Gotham and see how they're suffering and how Batman and the Batman family kind of have to go underground to try to save the city. And it's really interesting. It's a really good story if you want to know more about Gotham City itself, which I think can also be a future episode. I could totally just go on the history of of Gotham City in real life and in, in the comics because it's in itself, it's a really interesting concept. You know, it's not just Batman City. It's just like it's a whole entity of its own i I got a quick question quick aside so dc is obviously known for using fake cities right gotham is supposed to be new york yeah i mean the first time you kind of um because gotham city when batman first started it didn't exist It, it took about a year for it to even be called gotham city and it was just known as a metropolis or a new york style city but a lot of times especially in future stories a lot of artists take, you know, inspiration from Chicago and Los okay. Angeles. I mean, it can be almost just any huge metropolis at this point. Okay. But yeah, when it started, definitely New York. And, and then what was Metropolis modeled after? New York also? The brighter side yeah, of it? Yeah, pretty much the brighter side okay. of it. I mean, it pretty much. And even Frank Miller, um, he stated once that, you know, Metropolis is New York by day and and. Um, Gotham City is New York by night. There you go. I mean, that's as simple as it probably could be. And that's a great answer, and that (laughs) answers my question, so thank you. All right, so uh, No Man's Land, I did think that was – that actually brought me back into the Batman uh, fold. Yeah, and even though it was like right before the 2000s, but it was an epic story. I mean, it lasted a year. It was a crossover, and it also introduced um, the character Harley Quinn into Batman um, canon. Um, in her own one-shot Batman Harley Quinn. Um, it has the, I guess, now iconic Alex Ross cover with her and Joker. And, I mean, it was a really important story for Batman, I think. Um, so definitely Chuck Dixon did a lot of contribution to Batman in the 90s and kind of molded new characters, new storylines, and new kind of history to Batman that's really important even today. Wow. Um, so, yeah, Chuck Dixon is my first. And then Norm Brayfogle, who is... An amazing um, artist. Uh, he worked um, on a lot of Batman stories, and one of my favorites. And I always, I'd always recommend publications for Batman fans. You know, it's not just Batman and Detective Comics that Batman's in. I mean, he's had different publications like Legends of the Dark Knight, and then the the publication that Norm Bravenfogel is for is uh, the Shadow of the Bat, and that was from 1992 to 1993. Um, it lasted, um, you know, only a certain amount of issues, but it, you know, introduced stories that, like, introduced, like, Arkham Asylum. Like, it kind of reinvented that because uh, Arkham was introduced in 1974, but it wasn't really a huge, I guess, known staple as probably Arkham is now, especially since it's been highlighted by the Rocksteady video games and everything like that. But I think Shadow of the Bat, the first issues, uh, one through four, um, it introduced uh, Jeremiah Arkham, who was the creator of Arkham Asylum, and rebuilt it, and then the villain Zaz. And now those two figures are really important characters. And I think that kind of publication as a whole, you know, it kind of introduces new you know, stories that we've never seen in Batman and new characters and kind of gives it a a different, you know, type of look to Batman. Um, And it really stayed well within the early 90s, you know, after Nightfall came and then, of course, Batman the Animated Series came, which is a, you know, a film kind of noir type of look. And I think that kind of, um, that kind of look was definitely part of the early 90s. And I think this, this, uh, publication was definitely a good one to see with that right yeah how how many comics have you read batman comics oh i don't know (laughs) i mean i cannot get over how much you know i mean it's awesome um a lot i don't think i could put a number but these are stories that you've read yeah definitely i mean i mean i think i can't really talk about stories to such a great extent if i personally haven't looked at the stories themselves like I can give a general about what it's about but like 
me knowing whether or not, oh, this is a really good story for Batman fans, or this is like, oh, it's an okay story. It's a Batman story, but it's not so significant. It's really important, you know, and that's what I tell everyone that follows the blog. I'm like, you know, I'm giving a general, you know, synopsis or basically what it's about, but you reading it is going to be way more spectacular than me, anything that and I can, can ever tell. say. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, when I talk about certain comics, especially on here, I always want, I'm pretty much telling people, read these comics. I mean, they're definitely great stories that I think you should actually go out and read and, you know, really, you know, immerse yourself into more Batman because there's so many different types of ways that Batman's been drawn and written and just shown that you can never read, you can never read all Batman, which I think is awesome. You know, there's never like, oh, I've read all of the Batman stories that there ever was. I don't think that'll ever happen, especially since more are being produced. But that's a good thing. That means you can just keep, you know, knowing more stories and loving the character more and discovering new characters. Right. And, and listening to this podcast, finding some artists that are noteworthy right. or series that are noteworthy. Right. Storylines. Definitely. And then you'll probably find someone, you know, if you're reading a certain, you know, time period or certain publication. Like, if you're reading Shadow of the Bat, I mean, you'll fall in love with Norm Vogel's work. I mean, that's what I did. I mean, I really love his work. He contributed to Batman Nightfall and also No Man's Land as well. But then I, I also recommend the next story that I wanted to at least mention was um, he did an Elseworlds. And Elseworlds were only a few years old, I guess, in DC Universe just in general. And it started, like I mentioned earlier, I think um, with Batman Gotham by Gaslight, which was depicting a Victorian era Batman. And um, he has to go after um, Gotham's Jack the Ripper, pretty much. And I think that's fascinating. That's pretty much one of my favorite stories. Um, and Norm Brayfogel brings an Elseworld in um, Batman Holy Terror. And it shows a new side to Batman kind of finding vengeance to his parents' killers because he discovers that, first of all, he is a clergyman, so he's part of the cloth, so that's already kind of interesting. And he discovers that his parents' death was kind of planned. It was part of this whole system, and he's trying to discover who did it and why they would, you know, kill his parents. You know, it wasn't a random act of violence. It was, it had a purpose to it. And so once he's trying to investigate who killed his parents, he dresses up in an old costume that his father had, and it was just a huge bat. And so, you know, it kind of had that same, you know, Batman style. But it's just a new way to show audiences, you know, that even though it's a completely different story, he's in a different, you know, he's doing something different. He lives in a certain period. And that's why I like Elseworlds, because you see Batman in so many different ways, but you always come back to the same story. You always come back to him, you know, bringing, you know, vengeance from something that horribly happened to him. And he ends up wearing the Batman costume. And um, Norm Breitfogel with this definitely... Uh, did that with Batman Holy Terror. And it's a one-shot, and I definitely recommend it. It's a really good story. So Elseworlds for the uninformed are just alternate universes, right. out-of-continuity Batman stories? Uh, it's actually for all of the DC universe. Um, if you can read a Superman one or Wonder Woman or Justice League. Um, but yeah, that Elseworlds publications are pretty much DC Comics under... It can be any universe. It can be anything you can think of. And Batman has had tons of different Elseworlds and it's lots of different periods and different styles and I think you know like we were talking about earlier keeping open mind Elseworlds definitely showed how creators can use their imagination I mean they can put Batman in any type of setting whether past present or future anywhere in the world and still tell the same story you know Batman can either be in the Victorian era or he can be a cowboy like in Batman the blue the gray and the bat and or a pirate uh, yeah, <laughs> you've seen them in the pirate too. I mean, just everything. You, pretty much almost anything you could think of Batman been doing, he's probably been presented in Elseworlds or probably Grant Morrison got a hold of him and did something. I mean, it just, you can place Batman anywhere and he's still Batman, which is interesting, you know. And definitely Norm Breyfogle did that with Batman and Shadow of the Bat and Batman Holy Terror. And those are my two for the 1990s, Chuck Dixon and Norm Breyfogle. Wow. <laughs> so, as a quick aside, as someone who knows you, how hard was it not to include Kelly Jones in the 1990s? Oh, it was so hard because Kelly Jones is my favorite. 
Okay, well, here, here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. There is no way we're getting to pre-New 52 and uh. New 52 this episode. We're just not going to do it. Not going to do it? Okay. And I think we can actually, I know Mason is smiling somewhere because he told us we would never fit all these creators in. So why don't you talk, take this last little bit of time, talk about your favorite. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> that way, no one is going home oh, unhappy my goodness. here. Okay. Um, and I want to know why. I mean, your favorite. That's This is like, this is breaking podcast news. <laughs> I mean, a favorite from someone who knows so much. There better be some reasons that I can't wait to hear. And Okay. Well, go. okay. Well, first of all, I am a huge um, horror genre fan. I'm huge scary movies, all of that. And... Kelly Jones, and since we're talking about Elseworlds, Kelly Jones, he and um, Doug Moynch, they did the Vampire Batman. You know, the um, they did Red Rain and Crimson Mist and, and Bloodstorm and pretty much depicted Batman as being bitten by pretty much Dracula and he's a vampire. And Kelly Jones's work is just, I mean, it is just dripping with just horror and you just feel all of the Dracula, all of the werewolf, all of everything that you would love seeing any of the films. I mean the over exaggerated yes, long it's, ears. I mean the long ears. The long cow is my favorite. Everyone hates long ears on Batman. I love it. It's like to the ceiling. If it's on a cover, it protrudes over the title. And I mean he's just it's just so I guess dark and creepy and that's what I love. I love any type of that. I love those genres. I mean that and especially when it's even on Nightfall, when he did covers for Nightfall. And that has nothing to do, no vampire, nothing scary with Nightfall. But that's just how he draws his Batman. The cape is just draped everywhere. And it's just so dramatic and so angular, all of his lines. And I was so happy when I was reading Convergence and reading the Batman crossovers for it. Um, they did Convergence number two for Swamp Thing was with Red Rain Batman, and it was a vampire Batman, and him and Swamp Thing had to go to his Gotham City and his universe and had to kill all of the vampires. And you just see that just exaggerated, just ghoulish, horrific kind of story art. And yes, Kelly Jones, I love it. It's so exaggerated and... Definitely, and I love tons of different artists and writers for different reasons, but I just always loved seeing that from Kelly Jones. Um, I loved Gotham at Midnight. I loved all of his stories, and no matter what it is, it's so like, you know, you're watching a horror movie, and I think it's just awesome. But yes, Kelly Jones is my favorite, and it was really hard for me to put that in there, but I'm like, no, that's not fair, because, you know, he contributed to tons of stories, but that's just me being totally biased. So I didn't put him in. But You're yeah. allowed to give your favorites. I mean, I think <laughs> but that's... But I want to be fair. No, well, you are fair and objective, <laughs> and you have your favorites, too, and that's okay. I mean, that's what <laughs> makes this great, because we want to know what the things that really, you know, that you're absorbing and that you are that you love. I mean, you know, that's that's why people are tuning in, because not <laughs> only are you giving a little bit of history and context, but you're sharing... Your favorites, and maybe someone is gonna see you somewhere and say that Kelly Jones. Uh, oh, that and was if the one. ever Kelly Jones ever comes across this episode, I'm almost embarrassed because I'm like fangirling and super excited over his work. But I really do love his work. Definitely, yeah, my favorite um, artist. I would have to say. Nice. And I, yeah. <laughs> so thank you for letting me gush over. Oh, thank you. Thank you for gushing. <laughs> thank you for gushing. <laughs> So, I think um, we'll probably wrap up this episode, and we'll just continue on the next episode with the pre-52 creators, the new 52 creators, and then if we have time, we'll get into something very special that you have uh, planned for even after that. So, why don't you tell everyone what you are planning for them? Well, for these creators? No, 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 because we know that they're... You already know We, we know they're going to be the creators. Next. I want the next juice. Oh, I want yeah. The oh next. yeah, the next episode, after we kind of get through all the creators, I think is a really interesting one, and it's Batman's love interest. Ooh. Um, I mean, Batman, we all love that he's human, but I mean, he has human emotions and feelings, and he does have a heart, and I think 
a lot of people, you know, they're interested to see, you know, if Batman would ever settle down or if he would ever choose someone over kind of his love for justice. And so we're going to go over certain characters that have taken his heart over the past 76 years. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> I wish we could release that for Valentine's Day. Ah, I know. I'll Man. think of something. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So also, do you want to uh, give a shout out to the digital lizards of doom yes i actually um some of the stories that we're going to talk about um in the next episode and one that i covered batman year one i just was a guest on their show and they are so rad and i got to talk about two essential batman comics i think every batman fan should love and read and yeah definitely check me out on that show it was very fun and digital lizards (laughs) of doom are a band uh, that are based in San Diego. Right. They do a YouTube show for Meltdown and uh, talk comics, have great creators on there. Yeah. And you were there. Right. They have great guests, and their show is just tons of fun to listen to and to watch. I definitely recommend anyone watching uh, Digital Lizards with me, for sure. All (laughs) right. So fans, Bat fans, Gothamites. Gothamites. uh, How can everyone get in touch with you? Well, I mean, first and foremost, if you aren't already, you can definitely follow at Instagram.com slash History of the Batman. But if you have any questions, comments, concerns, anything you want me to answer for you or reference or anything, just email me at historyofthebatman at gmail.com and I will definitely get back to you. I'm open to any comments or any references, anything you guys want to know. If you think that some of the creators that I'm talking about, you know, aren't the best in the decades and you have your own, and I definitely want to hear from you. So, yes, email me at historyofthebatman at gmail.com. Sounds good. And are there any other – didn't you just start a Twitter page? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. I'm just starting on there. I feel like the last one <laughs> to start on Twitter. But I'm at twitter.com slash Hist, H-I-S-T, of the Batman. So give a follow, please. There you go. (laughs) And we are here at Meltdown Comics. You can find us at meltcomics.com. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. I don't even know if anyone uses Facebook anymore. (laughs) I heard that it's dying. (laughs) But uh, I don't know. Anyway, um, Shadow Adam, thank you, as always, for being here. It's always fun. And uh, just like to shout out our producer and engineer, Mason Booker. I am Adam Silverstein, the co-producer and fellow Batman fan now. I'm for sure all in. So (laughs) thank you for converting me again and bringing me to the light from the darkness. Uh, This is, as always, the history of the Batman with one. Brought to you by Meltdown Comics. Thank you so much for tuning in. And we will see you next week. Peace and love.